The word of God from Luke. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away with empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home altogether. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. I want to invite you to uh, be seated, and I want to invite Ty Gregory. As many of you know, Ty is our uh, pastoral resident, and uh, Ty, we're so glad to have you on this Epiphany Sunday. May I pray for you? Lord, I thank you for friends um, and just the privilege of sitting under teaching and uh, people who have uh, committed to studying your word and sharing it with us. So bless us as we learn from your word. Bless Ty. May his own words um, bring joy to his heart. Um, Lord, we want to know you more in this new year. Grow us through the preaching of your word. Illumine them that our eyes may see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're fired. <laughs> Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I know Ronnie just prayed for me, but do you mind if I pray one more time so we could just center our thoughts one more time around the scriptures that we just read? So if you would join me again in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you for these people and for this time. Uh, We need to hear the story you are telling about the world over and over and over again. Because our hearts are fragile and weak, Uh, Our lives are hard and demanding, and our identity is insecure. We need to be told uh, who we are, because we forget uh, that we're the sons and daughters of the one true king. We often act like uh, abandoned children, even though we've been adopted into your royal family. So help us to remember whose we are, uh, that we belong to you, and that we belong to each other. May your word reclaim us from the darkness that deceives us, so we can be renewed by the light of your presence. We ask for your help in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy Sunday. If we haven't met yet, hello. Uh, I'm Ty. 
It's really nice to meet you. Uh, I am a pastoral resident here at Denver Press. And if you're new with us today, like, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, you've caught us in this transition between the end of Advent and the beginning of ordinary time. So if you have, like, no idea how to live a life of faith, like, you've chosen the right time to be with us because we're all about to walk down that difficult path of daily spirituality. And it can be hard and even awkward. You know, I'm still stumbling my way through my own apprenticeship with Jesus some like 10 years later. Um, so if you're searching for some co-travelers who will just walk with you as you start this journey of faith, well, like, these are the friends I enjoy sharing the road with, and we're all here to walk together with you as well. So before this final moment of the Advent season closes, uh, the last thing that we celebrate about Jesus' life uh, is his appearance to the Gentiles. And the church, the church calendar names this Gentile appearance Epiphany. So Epiphany is a pivotal event in the story of God uh, because until this moment, God primarily revealed himself to the people of Israel. So except for like the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis, the rest of the Hebrew Bible is about this special relationship between God and Israel. So most of God's promises and God's actions centered around this one tribe and one family. Uh, descending from Abraham. So Epiphany uh, marks this vast opening of the family of God when God shows up in Jesus of Nazareth to embrace Gentiles along with the Jewish people. So this, this sweeping enclosure of all the families of the world is often associated with the visit of the Magi um, or with Jesus' baptism. But I think the Song of Mary also uniquely captures this moment. So here's why. When, when God descends into Mary's body, the proud and powerful and rich also descend with him. On the other hand, God's descent into Mary's womb lifts up the humble, the weak, and the poor. And that's, that's what Mary's poem is about this uh, divine rupture, this inbreaking and, and social reversal that happens when Jesus appears to the Gentiles because his life will ignite the beginnings of divine justice and reconciliation in the world. So that's what Jesus' Gentile appearance means for Jew and Gentile alike. So I think the song of Mary can help us uh, sustain our joy and hope as we move from sacred time into more ordinary time. Uh, because her encounter with the sacred and ancient promises of God was a deeply satisfying and personally meaningful moment for Mary. Uh, but that's because she saw herself as an actress who was caught up in this wider history-shaping event that was physically coming uh, to change the world through her body. And that's when Mary finally gets that she belongs to a God who's not only not ashamed of her, but who actually identifies with and favors invisible and even stigmatized people. And so for people like that, Jesus' life is overwhelmingly 
good news because his arrival leads to the bringing down of the strong and powerful and the elevation of the neglected and the forgotten. That's who Jesus is for unwanted people. So let's explore this uh, poem together so we can replicate Mary's humble joy as well as her lasting hope in the ancient promise of God that physically entered her womb to become a gift of divine mercy for the whole world. So that's the outline for today, humble joy and lasting hope. So Mary's joy begins when she visits Elizabeth, her cousin. And both of, both of them just had a very strange experience with an angel. So if you were to go back into chapter 1 to read these angelic encounters side by side, you would notice a pattern. So first of all, the angel arrives. Then he announces the unexpected pregnancy of a son who will bring great joy. And then he names that son and describes his role in the story of God. So the contrasting responses to this announcement is the important part. So Elizabeth's husband, uh, Zechariah, says in Luke 1.18, How shall I know how shall I know this? How will I know that my son will become this important, this important person in God's story? Uh, but that translation doesn't bring out the tone of suspicion uh, behind Zechariah's words. Uh, my translation of this scene would be, according to what thing will I know this? In other words, who or what is your source on this, O angel? You know, prove it to me. Which is why the angel Gabriel replies to this challenge with, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You will now be silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my words. And that's in Luke 1, 19 through 20. So the next time we hear Zechariah speak is some six months later. So he faced six months of forced silence until his own words finally fulfilled what the angelic messenger said. And after his child is born, he insists to his family and neighbors that his son's name will, in fact, must be John, not Zechariah, as Jewish custom would prescribe. So his suspicion towards the angel is especially unsettling because Zechariah is a priest. He acts as Israel's representative, uh, representative for God when he's performing his priestly duty of maintaining God's presence in the temple. So pray, his job is to pray day in and day out that God would be faithful to his ancient promises to Abraham, Moses, and David. But when it finally, those ancient promises finally show up in his life, he, he doesn't, he's not open to that. So when the angel Gabriel finally uh, suddenly shows up, his first thought isn't God is fulfilling his promise. It's cynicism and even contempt, I would say. Who are you to bring good news to me? I'm the priest standing in the temple. That's what I do for God, for God's people on a daily basis. So this is where Zechariah's uh, audacity is contrasted with uh, Mary's humility. Because that same angel comes to her, announces her unexpected pregnancy and coming joy, 
names her son Jesus, tells her he will inherit David's throne, and her response in Luke 1.34 is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So her question is, how will this thing occur? Not prove it to me. And it's a legitimate question because she hasn't yet given herself to a man. She's not being skeptical, right? She's being willing. She's willing to believe that it can happen. And the fact that she does respond like this is even more surprising because her pregnancy would be met with criticism and judgment. Um, Elizabeth and Zechariah have been married for a long time, right? Their pregnancy struggles are due to age and infertility, not infidelity. Elizabeth's pregnancy would be seen as miraculous, a reward for Zechariah's service as a priest. But Mary, uh, Mary's pregnancy entangles her in an apparent sex scandal. Uh, At best, her child would be seen as the result of premarital sex. At worst, he's the product of adultery. So either way, her life is about to be filled with shame and dishonor when God interrupts her life with this child of promise. So rejection is coming because her pregnancy looks disgraceful, but it also happens because Mary is from the wrong neighborhood. Uh, When the angel Gabriel is sent to Mary, it doesn't say he goes to Galilee, you know, a large region in northern Israel where mostly Gentiles live. It says he goes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And I know that seems like an obscure detail, but that's like someone saying, I'm from from the city of L.A. named Compton, right? You don't imagine the glitz and, and glam of Hollywood or the Lakers when someone says they're from Compton, right? All you heard and imagined were the rival gang and drug wars, high incarceration rates, under-resourced and underperforming educational systems, and poverty that characterized Compton, even though it's just south of L.A. So that's what this detail means. Mary's not only from the undesirable, secular area of Gentile Galilee. She's from the hood, right? A stigmatized community that trapped women in guilt and shame before they ever did anything wrong. So Jesus will be born and raised in the hood too. That's why Nathaniel, one of the apostles, will hear about Messiah's arrival in Nazareth and say, Nazareth, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? Right, so Jesus isn't the first one to face that kind of dismissive disapproval because because of where he's from. Mary is when, when she's carrying Jesus. But here's the thing. Mary doesn't have any regrets about this unexpected, socially damaging moment in her life. She could have let her identity and self-esteem be defined by the gossip, rumors, and apparent crisis she's caught in, but she doesn't. You know, instead, she humbly and joyously receives God's gift of Jesus into her body, because her self-worth and self-understanding are shaped by the ancient story of God that reaches its climax through her when her promised child is born. I think this is so important and relevant for us 
because it shows that God isn't afraid to involve himself in scandal, right? He's not worried about guilt by association. He wants to reclaim the ugly part of our lives, right? If he's willing to identify with Mary from the hood and Jesus of Nazareth, then he's ready to identify with all of us who feel invisible or unwanted because of some stain from our past too. And that's a beautiful thing about Mary's story and about, about her poem. Her song of praise is about God elevating these kinds of people because God shows up in the minimized and forgotten people of his world. So in verse 48, she says, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So the, the word for looked on here is often used in ancient medical literature, actually. It's used to describe a doctor who carefully examines a patient. So in other words, God notices Mary's wounds, um, the hidden hurt and pain she carries inside her that nobody else would even know about. Like God sees that. He sees that. So all of those moments and memories, like in your life, you just wish you could undo because they leave you restless at night with regret and shame. Like God sees them too. Like he feels them with you, but he doesn't expose them. Like a, a good doctor who sees the scars and trauma, he offers you healing and relief from your pain. You know, gently, patiently, lovingly soothing your wounds by actually making them his own. He's the only physician who heals by becoming the sick patient. That's what it means for God to become human in Jesus. It means healing our hurt, our sicknesses, by taking our diseases upon himself. And that's, that's where Mary's joy should come from, and that's, that's where our joy should come from. The God who, who reclaims our past and carries our unhealthiness in his own body to give us new life, new aspirations and dreams and horizons that we wouldn't dare imagine for ourselves. That's what God gives to us because he wants us to flourish. But it also comes from the God who lifts up the lowly and the stepped on so they would become guests of honor at his table. Or Mary's words in the second half of verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So her humble joy comes from the God who blesses forgotten people so they would experience just how known and cherished they really are. Because God notices and even favors the people who everybody else overlooks. That's, that's what it means to be blessed, to have God's redeeming attention give you new worth. So Zechariah, Zechariah the priest, the religious character in our story, he couldn't have that. You know, he was too busy challenging angels. He was too self-important in his own eyes, too suspicious, suspicious to let God's promises elevate him. God couldn't bless him because he was already enough. He was already enough. But Mary could have that joy. You know, her lowliness, her vulnerability, her modest, if not fragile, sense of self-worth allowed her to rejoice and God's elevation of her, because her humility, humility makes joy possible. So Mary's humble joy comes from the God who identifies with lowly and forgotten people because they are open to his blessing of reversal. 
But what about her lasting hope? Where does that come from? So in verse 49, Mary says, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So I know we often associate God's holiness with his uh, moral integrity. And that can sometimes be portrayed as God's eternal and scary hatred of sin. But here, here we get a depiction of God's holiness that's less about divine anger and more about a divine inbreaking into the world that leads to justice. So notice how comprehensive the depiction of God's holiness is in verses 51 through 53. Divine holiness includes God scattering or displacing the thoughts of the proud. It involves God toppling the mighty from their thrones while placing the humble in their seats. And it means God replenishing the hungry while depriving, depriving the rich. So God is, God is striking injustice from every angle. Right? He opposes and weakens the hidden plans of arrogant people that begin in their minds, but then he collapses the structures or the thrones that are set in place to protect their interests. And God even replaces strong, assertive leaders with humble ones who privilege the poor and reject the rich so they can't take advantage of others. So I don't know if we normally think about divine holiness in this way. But for me, this is what makes God's holiness compelling again. Because a holy God who takes sides with the weak against the strong is exactly what I want. You know, I love that God's holiness moves God to action. Often divine holiness is portrayed in, you know, personal and and negative ways. God despises me and my sin because I'm unholy. But God's holiness is so much more than that. It's what positively compels God to advocate and stand up for mistreated people. Like, I love that. I love that. I need that kind of God. We need that kind of God. And we need that because we're not very good at seeking justice. You know, more often than not, our pursuit of justice swerves right into injustice. It can quickly descend into retaliation and revenge because our sense of harm is disproportionate to uh, the wrongdoing itself. So our moral perception gets blurred because of the pain. That's why our hope for complete and lasting justice has to come from beyond us, because the desire for it is good and worthy, but the execution of it is complex. But but, uh, we need God to act for us and to defend our cause because his prosecution will be equal and fair. And acknowledging this complexity uh, doesn't mean you give up on justice-seeking, like far from it. It means that you simultaneously fight against injustice while hoping in God's holiness to ultimately and proportionally resolve it. So there's a kind of spiritual symmetry that emerges from a hope-filled advocacy for justice. So our lasting hope comes from God's holiness, but also comes from his mercy. And I want to use this last reflection on mercy and hope to close our time together. So verse 50 says this, His mercy is for those who fear him 
from generation to generation. And verse 54 says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just like he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So from generation to generation and forever. So if divine holiness is about God's, God taking sides with the weak against the strong, divine mercy is about God's unending commitment to resistant people. Because God relentlessly commits to a relationship with us, even though he knows we'll not only turn our backs on him, but walk away from him. You know, we're, we're unfaithful to him. Because we often choose to invest, you know, our, our security, our meaning, and our purpose in idols instead of in him. You know, other gods we think we, will make us happy, but who will actually use and exploit and take from us rather than give to us what they promise and what we demanded from them. That's, that's what an idol is. And that's what it means to not fear God, right? Entrusting our hearts and our lives into dishonest and worthless replacements of God. But it also means not getting mercy, but cruelty from these idols. You know, backstabbing, betrayal from an imposter who vowed safety and life, but only brought insecurity and death. But when you fear the God revealed in Jesus, you get a reliable and mercy-filled God who endlessly commits to compulsively disloyal people. And like verse 54 says, God even refreshes his people's memories so they can continually and repeatedly enjoy his mercy. And I'm so glad Mary reflects on this in her poem because divine mercy is so invigorating when it's fresh. But the problem is our experience of God's mercy can become stale all too quickly because we're suspicious, right? Filled with distrust, cynicism, paranoia against the divine. And that's why God's holiness has to step, step in to upend the proud, powerful, and rich because it not only refreshes our sense of God's nearness and commitment to lowly people, but it also, it also has a way of severing our self-induced attachment, attachment issues to false gods. So when God topples the high and mighty, he's dismantling the idols of greed and power and narcissism, showing us that they're futile in giving us what we want. You know, and that's a mercy to us. It's a, it's a deep, deep mercy to us because it's hard to de detach ourselves from these idols. That's why we can often experience these moments as a loss, as God depriving me of something good because he's jealous or angry or something like that. When in fact, God's intervening to heal, to heal me of my toxic addictions so he can satisfy me instead. So when God shatters our idols, he's setting us free from the death-dealing power of sin so we can be renewed by his life-giving presence uh, once again where there is fullness of joy. And you get that from the Exodus illusion of God's strong arm in verse 51. So the first time biblical poets depict God's strong arm is in the liberation song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15. 
So after God drowns Pharaoh and his armies with the waters of the Red Sea, um, so that the children of Israel can begin their escape to freedom toward the promised land. That's the first instance of God's, of God's strong arm. So whenever God shows strength with his arm, that's not a, it's not a divine flex, right? God doesn't have arms. That's God rising up to defeat the enslaving and life-taking power of sin, which means... Mary is expecting an Exodus-like event to happen once again. And this time, God won't use a a torrent of water to to crush evil, but a baby. And eventually, even a cross. So in verse 47, Mary rejoices in God, my Savior. So I'm about to get a little languagey on you, but just, just, just hang on. Okay, this is really beautiful. God, my Savior. So the Greek word we use, uh, th- that we translate as Savior, is soter. Okay, we get our English word soteriology from this, which is the doctrine of salvation or rescue. So the Hebrew word Mary would be familiar with for salvation or for rescue is Yeshua or Yehoshua, depending on, on the translation. Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. So when Mary rejoices in God, my Savior, she's rejoicing in God, my Yeshua, my Jesus. You get it, right? Now we get why Mary's memory of God's mercy is so fresh, why she's so joyous, she bursts out in song and writes a poem about it, because the long-awaited promised child of Abraham has come. And just like God rose up against Pharaoh, that symbol of slavery and death by sinking him in water all those years ago, she expects this child, her Yeshua, her Jesus, to rise up against those evils as well. She's rejoicing because her son is destined to become Yeshua, destined to become the rescuer who takes every wrong onto his body and drowns them by absorbing it onto himself and then leaving it on the cross. When Jesus is resurrected three days later, the twin evils of sin and death are defeated and our slave masters are gone and our freedom is secure. Because Jesus not only drowned every wrong, but the very source of evil itself through his ocean of sacrificial love on the cross. So as as we move into ordinary time, I want us to let Mary's story become our story because we're all actors and actresses in the grand drama God is telling about the world. You know, we might live after this seismic event we've read about and explored today, but like Mary, we can reimagine our, our, uh, the worth and meaning of our lives when we have this similar encounter with the sacred and ancient promises of God. Mary didn't have inexplicable joy and hope because God gave her everything that she wanted. I know we often think that's where our joy and hope will come from, but that's not where, that's not where Mary's joy and hope comes from. But God did give Mary the gift of Jesus, And he was the long-awaited promised child of Abraham. 
And his life of holy reversal and mercy-filled reconciliation transformed her self-worth and her self-understanding. And that's, that's what I want Jesus to do for us. You know, when life gets hard and messy and mundane and repetitive, we have to retell the story of God to ourselves. Uh, the drama of God toppling the successful, the influential, and the accomplished so that the weak, the poor, and the needy would have their seat at the table. The drama of God using the most fragile and shameful of tools, a baby and a cross, to free us from the twin oppressors of sin and death. And when we get that God acts in these strange and counterintuitive ways, there's no limit to who or where we expect God to show up. Right? There's no desperate situation he's unwilling to step into because God always shatters our expectations by crossing the boundaries we wouldn't dare touch. But that's the God of Mary. And that's our God too, Denver Press. That's our God too. Would you guys pray with me as we close our time? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this ancient poem. We're grateful for the ways the language and imagery of this poem has a unique power to change our lives, to unsettle and to reshape our desires back towards you and the things that you love. Thank you for being a God of solidarity, holiness, and mercy. We need you to identify with us because we're broken and we want to be restored after your image so that we can reflect your reconciling love and mercy-filled justice to our hurt and wounded world. Help us to find and sustain inexplicable hope and joy as we move into ordinary time by encountering your ancient promises in new and fresh ways so we would have a more deeply satisfying relationship with you and so that our hope and joy would be contagious to others. We ask for your guidance and renewal in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.